Welcome once again to the Suburban Vicar podcast. I'm your host, Steve Silverthorne. The Suburban Vicar is a podcast about how faith and community can intersect to help neighborhoods flourish and to nurture the human spirit. Now, one of the goals of this podcast on community is helping people overcome barriers to the actual communities which exist in our neighborhoods, in particular barriers to the church community. Sadly, you can take your pick of many barriers that make it hard to join or even visit a church. However, one of the biggest hurdles my church throws up for newcomers is that we do a lot that doesn't make much sense to someone new. One of the biggest challenges for new folks are our church's rituals, those activities that get repeated in the same way over time. Why does he do that? Why does she always say the same thing at that point in the service? And how come we always eat bread and drink wine when we gather on Sunday mornings? Things like these can be mystifying. They can also be pretty boring when you don't know what they're there for. If there's one thing you have to get used to hearing if you're an Anglican minister, it's hearing people tell you how boring and repetitive your rituals are. It's hard enough from randos who have to clear a big hurdle just to walk through the door of a church and try to figure out what's going on. What's worse is hearing this from people I know are Christians who have gone to church for years. Ritual is not something North Americans usually appreciate much. It seems like whenever you use the word ritual, we have to attach the words empty, meaningless, or boring to them. It's a big hurdle to going to church for many people, and maybe it is for you. So why do churches like mine persist in keeping rituals? Why do we make them so central to our worship? The obvious answer is that there are some rituals Jesus wants us to keep, but I want to talk about why he would want us to keep them, and how we can start to make them seem more meaningful to us. I'm going to limit my explainer today to two rituals, baptism and communion, although you might know the last one as a Mass or the Eucharist or maybe the Lord's Supper. Every church has these rituals as part of their church life, even if they are sometimes different in exactly how they do them, but as I talk about them, I hope it gets you thinking about rituals in general and why the other rituals we keep in church might be important. I'll say right now that one of the best books I've ever read on the meaning and purpose of rituals in human life is a book called Human Rights. That's R-I-T-E-S, not R-I-G-H-T-S. And a rite is just a fancy word for ritual. The book's by a Bible scholar named Drew Johnson. So credit or blame where it's due. I'll be relying a lot on his observations as I talk about why the ritual we use in church should make a lot of sense. I'll leave a link to the book in the show notes, so be sure to check it out. So first off the bat, what's a ritual? To help you understand what a ritual is, I should probably make a confession to you, dear listeners. I have a bit of a weakness for horror movies. Not the chainsaw-wielding maniac type, but the slow, suspense-driven kind. I watched one of those types of movie on Netflix a few months ago called The Ritual. It's about a group of hikers from the UK who decide to take a hiking trip across Sweden. The problem is they get lost in the woods along the way. After wandering around days, they run into a weird cult who, spoiler alert, captures them and wants to offer them as a human sacrifice to some demon in the forest. The move is called the ritual because that's often what we think of when we think of a ritual. It's some kind of strange religious thing that seems otherworldly and weird. And of course, the film points out that that can be true. But I think we miss something if we think that's all that a ritual is. Instead, a better way of thinking about rituals is to think about how they work in ordinary life. The only reason they make sense in religious life is because they are things we relate to every day in ordinary life. 
Rituals are actually just ordinary or repetitive things that we do all the time, but which are repurposed for some higher goal. In other words, if you want to understand what a religious ritual is, you should start by asking what ordinary thing that ritual is built on. What do the actions and words of the ritual point to on an ordinary level? And how do they reshape that ordinary thing to point to something higher and more profound? The best way to explain what I mean is to share a few examples you might relate to. Let's move away from human sacrifice for the moment and what forest demons like to snack on. Hopefully that's not something you can relate to very well. Instead, let's look at what humans normally eat and why they do it. Another slightly less strange movie I really enjoyed is called The Matrix. It made almost half a billion dollars worldwide, so you've probably seen it and liked it too. It's about a guy played by Keanu Reeves, who comes to realize that the life we live in the modern world is actually an illusion, a kind of dream world. In reality, he and most human beings are actually asleep in a world that has been destroyed by war. A pivotal scene in the movie is where Keanu's character wakes up from this dream. He looks around and realizes that what he has woken up to is a world stripped of all the beauty, life, and meaning he had been taking for granted in the dream world. Soon he's rescued by a band of resistance fighters, and they explain to him what has happened, what life in the real world is like, and how to survive in it. Here's what's interesting to me about that scene. Soon after he's awakened and gets over his shock, they sit Keanu down for a meal. They place in front of him a bowl of gray, watery mush. After staring at it for a while, he asks what it is. Turns out it's a bowl of fats, carbohydrates, and amino acids. Everything a body needs. Well, they tell him it's all he needs, but his face tells another story. It may have all the nutrients he needs to sustain his body, but he needs more. He wants something more out of his food than the core nutritive elements. And we do too. We all have basically the same bodily needs as he did. Without certain nutrients, we can't sustain life. It's a core fact of human existence, so we eat every day. But this thing we do every day does more than sustain our bodies. We demand more out of food because we want it to point to some greater purpose. For one thing, we want it to delight our senses. We want it to taste and smell good and to give us pleasure as we eat it. There's a kind of satisfaction we get out of a tasty, pleasant meal that gives more than physical energy. It, it gives kind of a spiritual energy that helps us look at the world with more optimism and joy. But eating goes even further than this. Yet another layer of what food does for us comes from the way it acts as a kind of glue in our relationships with others. Think about the last time you enjoyed a birthday or an anniversary. It's pretty common to go out to a restaurant on those kinds of occasions, and often to a high-priced one. Hopefully you enjoy the food, but you do more than this at a fancy restaurant. So think about going out with your wife on your anniversary. You don't start by eating. You start by picking out what you're going to wear and putting on your nicer-than-average clothes. When you arrive, you spend some time soaking up the atmosphere, listening to the background music as you walk in, and maybe noticing the interesting paintings hanging on the wall as you sit down at your table. You survey the menu and talk to each other about what you might order. Maybe you have a cocktail and then share an appetizer. And you chat about the quality of the steak you ordered or the way that the vegetables were arranged on the plate. And you linger over dessert and coffee and wonder if you're going to get lucky. 
This happens in a restaurant, and it happens over food. Bodily nutrition is the basic reason you're there, but it's not really the most important reason. Nutrition may be what gets things going, but it's the relationship which is strengthened over food, and that's the higher purpose for going out. That's what I mean by a ritual. It's an ordinary human event, in this case supplying your body with necessary nutrients, but repurposed for a higher goal. In this case, it's strengthening your marriage. If you think about it this way, it doesn't take long to see that rituals are scattered everywhere throughout our lives. Maybe we start walking our dog because she needs to pee, but we end up doing it for the higher purpose of enjoying the beauty of the neighborhood trees as they change into their fall colors. Maybe we start a new job to pay the bills, but we soon find it serves the higher purpose of giving meaning and structure to our lives. When we shift to church life, we can start to understand what rituals mean and why they're important, if we start to look at them in the same way. What ordinary thing does this remind me of, and what higher purpose is it meant to serve? Like I said earlier, I'll focus on two rituals today, communion and baptism, because they're common to every church. But as I do, keep this way of looking at rituals in mind. What ordinary thing does it remind me of, and how has it changed to point to a higher purpose? At my church, Good Shepherd, we celebrate a ritual called communion, and we do it every time we have a Sunday service. Some churches do it less often, but the basic elements are always the same. We consume two kinds of food. We eat bread, and we drink wine. We say a whole bunch of words around it, but don't lose sight of the basic thing going on here. We're eating and drinking. That's the same as any other time we eat and drink, whether it's bread and wine or a cheeseburger and a Pepsi. We're eating food, and it's providing nutrients to us. But we can understand the higher purpose communion is serving by considering what's different when we eat this at church from when we have a meal at McDonald's. First, it's always the same food. I admit I fall back into the same pattern at McDonald's pretty often, and I usually order a McChicken. But when I'm feeling a bit guilty about my eating habits, I sometimes go for the Caesar salad. At church, we don't even have that limited variety. It's always the same bread and always the same wine. Have you ever thought about that? Why it's always the same? Second, it's always the same words and always the same actions. Now I'm a priest, and I lead communion each Sunday. When I do, I always set the table, place the bread, pour the wine, add water to it, and say a prayer. And in the prayer, I always quote Jesus when he says, This is my body which is broken for you, and this is my blood which is shed for you. Now we don't usually repeat the same phrases when you have an ordinary meal. Yet we always do when we eat this meal. So what's going on? What do these things tell us about the higher purpose communion's meant to serve? The Bible tells us that long ago, in fact 2,000 years ago, Jesus gathered with his friends for a meal. There he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. He is at supper here, and is giving food to his followers. But he's taking this ordinary food and giving it special meaning. He's saying that in some sense this bread is actually him, his flesh and blood. The ordinary nourishment of this food is somehow being repurposed to provide spiritual nourishment to those who take it. Each time in church, we use the same elements of bread and wine, and we use the same words of body and blood. 
This sameness time after time is meant to point us to that night when Jesus took those same foods and said those same words. Each time we do this in church, it helps us achieve the goal Jesus wants for the meal, to help us remember him and to be nourished by him. Ordinary eating becomes a ritual pointing us to the higher purpose of being nourished by Jesus. Or to think of it another way, it's like having a meal with your spouse on an anniversary. The meal you enjoy together isn't just food. It's a deeper sense of intimacy that comes from sharing the same food and looking back at your married life together. It's one of the reasons we use the word communion to talk about this church ritual. It comes from the Latin word communionum, meaning sharing or mutual participation. We gather for a meal that Jesus has reshaped to make us connect to him better, and as a result, share a kind of intimacy with him. We also share a kind of intimacy with everyone else at this meal, the others at church who are taking communion with us. We're doing ordinary things like sharing a meal, but doing it in such a way that it points us toward the higher calling of intimacy with Jesus and with each other. Now, the other major ritual the church is engaging is called baptism. In some churches, baptism means you dunk a person in water, and in other churches, it usually means only sprinkling them with water rather than immersing them. If you're in the Anglican or Catholic tradition, you've probably been invited to a friend or family member's baptism before, and usually in those services, it's a baby who's being baptized by sprinkling water over him or her. Think for a few minutes about what you saw there. Does it look similar to something you've seen before? What I often think about when I'm the one doing the baptizing is how similar this is to a regular occurrence in my home when the kids were little. I would fill up a little tub with warm water, get all the towels ready, and sit my baby daughter into the warm water. With my hands, I'd gently sprinkle water over her until all the messy peas and carrots and other unidentifiable crusty bits had been washed off. This was a daily ritual for my wife and I and part of our commitment of love and care for each of our children. Now look back to this baby bath and compare it to a baby baptism. An adult holds a child, pours water over her, and towels her off while telling her that she's loved by God. What this image should do for us is to make us think of the daily task of washing our children from dirt and everything else that could make them sick. This common element points us to something baptism is supposed to do, to tell us we are being washed clean of something and that this is done as an act of love from God, our Heavenly Parent. Those are a few of the same elements as our daily habit of washing, but what about the things that are different? What makes this a special ritual instead of just a regular habit? For one thing, a baptism is only supposed to be done once in a person's lifetime. Hopefully your practice at home is to bathe more often than that. For another, we always say the same words at a baptism. When I baptize, I always say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, as I either sprinkle or dunk someone. Now, you may sing for your baby when you bathe her, or you may tell her you love her, but you probably don't use the exact same formula of words every time. Also, baptism is always something done for you. You don't baptize yourself. Now, it's true that babies get bathed by others, but most adults don't. Yet even in adult baptisms, we always have to come to the church and to ask for a minister to do this for us. We can't just do it ourselves. That too is a significant difference which should tell us something about what we're doing when we baptize. Lastly, you probably don't bathe in front of a crowd. 
but at most churches, a baptism is done in front of a congregation, as well as any visitors who come for the special occasion. These differences should help us understand the greater purpose baptism is supposed to serve. It is a washing repurposed for something that's like washing, but is deeper and longer-lasting. It's a washing, but it's something with such power and acts in so deep a way that whatever cleansing it does, it lasts for a lifetime. It's always done by a representative of the church, not by ourselves. And it's always done in the names of the God the church believes in. So whatever is being done in this ritual is something we aren't capable of doing ourselves, and in fact can't be done by any human power alone. It has to be done by God's power, the God who the church says was responsible for raising Jesus from the dead. And it's done in the company of the church congregation. This isn't just something that involves the person being washed. It somehow involves all the people in the church who've gone through this ritual as well. So what is this special kind of washing doing? It's a washing away of some deep, powerful stain that can't be washed away by any earthly power, but instead by God's power. And it makes some kind of bond and connection between the person who's being washed with everyone who has had this washing done to them in the past. The churchy way of saying this is that in baptism, God washes away the sin which stains our souls and adopts us into a church family. This is what rituals do in church. They communicate something important to us about God, the world, and our relationship to them. They do more than words alone do because they invite us to participate in actions which shape the way we think and act. Each time we participate in a baptism, we are challenged to see ourselves as part of a family connected by baptism. We are challenged to see ourselves in a new way, as people who have been cleansed by God. And we are challenged to see ourselves as God's children, loved and cared for like a baby in the gentle hands of our mum or dad. Like I said, there are many other rituals churches engage in, but you will be glad to hear I won't try to go through them all. But I will say this, that the way I've described rituals in this podcast isn't just a way to understand baptism and communion. It's a way which will help you better understand the many ceremonies I haven't mentioned. When you see a ritual in progress, look carefully at what's going on. Ask yourself what it looks like and what regular everyday thing it would remind you of if it weren't happening in church. Then ask what's different about it when it happens in a church. That difference between the ordinary and the churchy will tell you a lot about what it's doing and what higher purpose it's meant to serve. Well, I hope that that will help you feel more at home next time you visit a church or if you get kidnapped by a Swedish cult. That brings this episode to a close. Next month, I'm hoping to go back to an interview format, so be sure to tune in for my next mystery guest. I'm also open to suggestions on what to cover or who to interview, so please slide into my DMs and let me know. As always, you can reach me on Twitter at SH Silverthorne, on Facebook at Good Shepherd Church Barhaven, or through the contact section of my church website, goodshepherdbarhaven.ca. And if you're feeling especially generous, hit the old tip jar in the site's donation section. God loves a cheerful giver. If you like this episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe to the podcast by typing in The Suburban Vicar on Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts and hitting the subscribe button. With a simple click of that button, a new monthly ritual will be born. 
The internet will midwife a fresh, rosy-cheeked episode from its place in my podcast feed to the warm embrace of your cerebral cortex. Truly a miracle of modern life. Stay tuned for more next month. And to those planning a hike in Sweden, be sure to sleep with one eye open. Until next time, stay rooted, my friends. Thank you.